You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. What a joy and privilege it is to be here. If you are a guest or a visitor, we especially are welcomed in Christ's name. And just to refresh, I am not the main pastor, so uh, don't leave after the sermon today. Give our real pastor a chance to do that. I would say I'm a pinch hitter, but um, with the baseball being locked out and all that going on, I don't know if I want to be a pinch hitter. That's a complicated story. So I'm coming in off the bench. It is my privilege to do so, um, to bring the word of the Lord to the people of Thrive and those who are part of our community. Thanks be to God, especially about this topic, right? We've been talking about I have my doubts, and they seem to be built into us, don't they? Doubts seem to be built into us. It's just impossible to avoid them. I believe, help my unbelief, not only the cry of the dad whose son was, con- was um, possessed, but my, my confession. How about that as your pastor? I believe, oh, but God help my unbelief. Related to that unbelief is doubts and fears. Fears are a close cousin, a first cousin a very close family friend of doubts, fears. And what I hope to be able to show today is that they are interconnected. What I hope to be able to illustrate today from Psalm 27 is that our fears have to do with our focus. And I also want to begin to illustrate that fears also are uh, simply a part of our human nature and our brain. Last week, last week, John spoke on the nature of the mind, right? Who knows? I can't remember either. Yeah. Sorry for asking John when he preached last. I don't know. Uh, I get it. I can't remember either. <laughs> there was a Sunday sometime in recent history. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do that. When uh, John was talking about the nature of the mind, and the mind actually has a place in a opportunity and a function to to process fears. So we're going to talk about the nature of the mind. We're going to then move from the nature of the mind in processing fears to the nature of the spirit. One of the key elements I want you to watch for as we kind of unfold this nature of doubts and fears and fears and doubts and how they're interconnected is that fears are normal and God-given opportunities to protect ourselves But what happens over time is fears become our friends. When I began to realize this, I I, I kind of shake my head. I noticed in pastoral care and counseling and marriage and family therapy, I've noticed that sometimes people will hold on to their fears because they serve a function and a purpose in their life. They keep them from doing something. They allow them something that they can control. And that to become fearless is actually out of our control. <laughs> it's actually a surrendering, surrendering process rather than something I muster. What you should be able to see in this message over and over again is that I'm not going to ask you to dig deep. I'm not going to ask you to straighten it up. I'm not going to ask you to figure it out. I'm going to ask you to be open and surrendered which may seem the very opposite of what people would think about doing when they're afraid. 
All that by way of introduction, as well as to say thank God for the opportunity this week to be at the Thrive Support Dinner. We thank you for your gifts and your commitment to this. Thrive has got a very clear and functional mission and vision, and that's relationships aren't something, they're everything. And we exist here at Thrive to make sure that our relationship primarily with Jesus Christ works with one another and in, in with, with one another forms community and that that community changes the world. No, the good people of Thrive didn't dream that up. <laughs> it actually came from the Bible. <laughs> Relationships aren't something. They're everything, especially with doubts and fears. You want to magnify fear? You want to exaggerate fear? Be alone. Let's walk through this. Jesus I am afraid. Let's take a poll here. Raise your hand if you've ever been afraid. Yeah, right. Okay, 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 okay. You get my uh, the point made, right? Yeah. Here's the nature of the triune brain. This is the oversimplified focus on the nature of the mind, the triune brain. I did not name it the triune brain. It was named the triune brain by scientists. I love that, but that's a whole other story. So the brain, in an oversimplified fa fashion, has the green portion of the brain is where we do heavy calculations and thinking. That's where our math majors like Hugo and others are figuring out strategies and differential equations and other things that I don't know what they mean or how to do them. Those are strategizing, thinking, communicating, creativity. It's all found up there. The blue is in an oversimplified fashion, again, once again, our emotional state. That's where our emotions reside. That's where we feel about stuff. And what we have here then at the base there in the red is the amygdala and all of the functions around the amygdala that, that make us <coughs> duck out of fear, right? And it's placed right over the top of the brainstem because there's no time to think. And this is by God's, God's design. So if you're being chased by a lion, what you don't do is use the upper part of the brain and go, huh, what are my options here? <laughs> True story, right? If a deer jumps out in front of you while you're driving on a country road someplace or you're in the dark, you don't see the deer, you go, there's a deer. Honey, what do you think we should do? <laughs> None of that happens. The other thing is, is just as true is that when we become afraid of something in sort of a sudden context, uh, we don't discuss how we feel. The lion is chasing me. Uh, it just so frustrates me when lions chase me. <laughs> we, don't, we don't express emotions. There's, there's no emotional content to it. We simply run. And God has designed and built us to for fight or flight. Do I have a lion stopping gun? Or is there a lion uh, or a tree that I can climb to escape the lion? What, you get my point, is that it all, and it all happens instantly. So at the very base of our brain, God has designed us so that we don't have to think about things or feel things in order to be safe from the fears that we have. So all kind of things happen in a complicated fashion. I used to know a lot of them. I know a few of them that the eyes dilate, the, the body gets flooded with adrenaline, the heart starts pumping, um, everything starts happening so that you can quickly 
get out of harm's way. This is by design. This is not the fear I'm talking about. It's when this fear of any form or, or nature becomes woven into our lives and we simply or hmm, automatically or intentionally walk into the lion's den. Or walk, what I like to do is walk right on the border of the lion's den and see how close I can get to the lion. Then something has changed. Now what God has designed is becoming out of whack. I'm now growing accustomed to it. I'm now using it. I'm now manipulating it. I'm now being a part of it. My fear is becoming my friend, and that's a problem. So the reptilian, the brain, amygdala, men for protecting our life, not learning to live there. It's an odd thing, and I'm going to kind of restate this a few different times in a few different ways with a few different slides to say that when we've become accustomed to being afraid, we almost become frightened to not become afraid. Do you follow me on that? We become anxious because there's a certain amount of control I can have. I think I can have the illusion of control that I hang on to because not being afraid is a matter of surrendering. Let's watch how this climbs on. Anybody remember this picture? This is a picture of a modern-day, contemporary, fictitious parable of a man walking the edge of a cliff. He falls off the cliff, but he grabs on to a tree, a tree branch, as you can note. So he's on a tree branch. He's screaming and yelling for help. Help, help. Nobody comes to him for help. And then finally, he, in an exhaustion, hears a voice saying, let go. And he goes, Who's there? Let go. Who are you? I am the Lord your God. Let go. Heavy silence. Who else is up there? The point? Letting go is exactly what we're called on to do. And it's good practice. Guess why? Because there's going to come a time when you and I are going to have to let go for the last time. So what's interesting about the message today in Psalm 27 is that it's practice and rehearsal for times of war. Now in, in Eastern Europe, Western Russia, Ukraine. But it's also an opportunity to practice for that time when you and I will have to let go. And it's a when, not an if. Unless the Lord returns, and then he promises all kind of things that are likely to strike fear into our hearts. Can you let go? Do you understand? Will you trust the voice of God and let go? No, by letting go, you'll actually become fearless. It seems wrong. It's a paradox. I love a paradox. A paradox is a deep and profound truth that at first seems ridiculous until you examine it deeper and you go, oh, it's really true. Take a look how this happened biblically. Before Psalm 27, let's kind of take a look at This is a picture and an image from the Chaldean Times dug up archaeologically. 
uh, an image uh, that was uh, put in, etched into the stone of their paper. No, it's just a cartoon. Sorry about that. It's a cartoon of what an artist thought would happen uh, when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to leave his home and family. To leave where he was with Ur of, the Chal of Chaldea and head to the promised land, Cana. Now, the reason why I, you have to understand, he was a wealthy man. He had lots of goods. He had lots of people. He had lots of workers, lots of camels. And God said, I want you to take you to some place. Where am I going? I'll let you know when you get there. This was my idea of absolute fear. Imagine if there was a, you went home today and there was a moving van out in front of your house. And there were people loading your stuff onto the moving van. And you go, where are you taking me? God has told us that we'll get in the truck. He'll let us know along the way. Get in your car and follow. Who could do that without fear? <laughs> this absolutely strikes terror into my heart. There was a president of the congregation where I served in Zion, in Zion Hopkins, Minnesota, and his son used to take a two-week vacation each year on their motorcycle. And they, you know where they would go? Nobody knew because they didn't know. They'd take turns going, let's see, I'll go in this direction for two miles, and then they'd go that direction for two miles or two hours. Then they'd pull over to the side and say, okay, you pick. Then they'd say, north for an hour. And they'd for north for an hour and wander around the United States for two weeks. Kill me. <laughs> Show up at my door, Lord, and say, Carl, I want to take you. Some I'm used to strategizing, thinking it through, making a plan, having it work. I made a living doing that for Lutheran Church Extension Fund. I became vice president because I could do that. <laughs> Tell me, I don't know where you're going, and you're scaring me to death. And it's exactly what God said. No, Carl, see, your strategic planning doesn't matter to me. Just follow me. So the first thing about fearlessness that I want you to know before we get to Psalm 27 is that it's letting go and letting God drive the truck, or in this case, the camel, to where you want to go. This one is not as under, well, is not as popular. Well, as you may recognize, that's the prophet Elijah. <laughs> I don't know how you'd recognize him. And that's his servant behind him. And the servant is pretty nervous because here's what the servant is nervous about. The Israelites at the time are fighting King Aram, A-R-A-M, Aram. But God is instructing Elijah about King Aram's every move. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. So it's like God has got a spy planted in King Aram's palace. Because every military move he makes, people of Israel are there. Then they're over there and they're stopping. And he can't make a move without being thwarted. He's frustrated. He goes to his advisors and he goes, how do they know what I'm going to do next? And he goes, it's Elijah. Elijah's plugged into God and God's telling him. And King Aram, King Aram goes, the king of Aram goes, we got to kill him. Let's go capture him. They do a snatch and grab like the seals do. And the servant is all worried about it. Here comes all of the soldiers. They're coming after you. And Elijah says, no, no, no. Do you see what I see? You can't quite tell. The fiery red is there, an army of angels. 
And Elijah said, that's why I'm not afraid. Because what, what you've just seen until now is the army coming to get me. What God has shown me and now you is that there's an army of angels fighting before us. So fearlessness doesn't have to do with me and getting strong and courageous. It has to do with the revelation of God and seeing things from his perspective. And trusting that there is an army of angels for you as well. Here's a more popular one, too. You recognize this. It's used for this example, but I don't want to miss it again. This is Peter getting out of the boat. And I've preached a whole sermon series on this at times and places. It's phenomenal. And I think the biggest story is often missed. It's that first transfer of weight. that Peter takes from the boat to the water. And of course, he listened to the Lord's voice. He said, if it is you, Lord, call me out of the boat. And he went, and of course he did. And you remember why he started to fall? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Diego, you get to be Jesus in this example. And onto the waves, boom, down he goes. So once again, fearlessness... That has to do with Peter's courage or what he could muster inside of him. But on his trusting and accepting that his eye contact with Jesus would keep him afloat. Huh. This is uh, Back to the Future. Who here has seen Back to the Future? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, yeah. It's an, it's an older movie, a uh, reference. So, I don't remember which one this is, but Michael J. Fox looks pretty young, doesn't he? (laughs) And the part of that that I want to use for this illustration is that, if you remember the movie, he's got a sports almanac in his hand from 1950 to 2000. And 2000, at that time when the movie was made, was into the future, which is kind of an odd thing, right? So, he's got a sports almanac, and the sports almanac has got the results of every horse race, football game, baseball game. So he wants his, it's a longer story, but he wants to take that into the future. And so he would have a sure bet on every event and become wealthy because he would know who would win. Get the point? The whole sports almanac thing? You could go to the future, open up and say, let's say, I wonder how the Chicago Cubs are going to do this year. And then realize, oh, I better not bet on them. For roughly 107 years, you would not (laughs) bet on the Cubs, but that's another story. Every 108, you could, they're a sure thing. But you wouldn't put a dollar on them otherwise, because you could read and tell the ending of the Cubs season or the Chicago Bears and the other Chicago sports teams, which I mourn and loss and moan. Point of that isn't anything other than you could have a sense of confidence. You could sit in the, the most nail-biting game and have absolute confidence because you have the sports almanac that you've brought forward from the past, from the future. And now you could bet on that and become a wealthy person. Why in the world, Pastor Carl, are you spending all this time on that stupid movie? Stupid. Well, maybe not stupid. Crazy. Because we get our own sports almanac. Fearlessness has to do with the confidence that comes from 
God's word. And we've been studying Revelation here for a while. Now the end of the story. We know how it all turns out. We know whose bet we want to place our time, attention, and talents. So fearlessness has to do with trusting the fact that we know the outcome. It's already been pronounced. I love the pluperfect tense. It gives me a sense of confidence and strength. Why the grammar lesson? Because the pluperfect tense speaks of the future as though it's occurred in the past. So oftentimes, Scripture gives me the pluperfect tense, Carl, you are saved. Already done. My eternity is already complete. My salvation is a completed fact. I just have to live my life. But I can live it with confidence because it is already done. God gave me a special gift. I always wanted to be a pastor when I was growing up. And uh, I was in first grade and I was drawing, you know, instead of fire trucks and firemen and police officers and stuff, I was drawing guys in long dresses and stoles, you know. And, and then everybody thought that was cute. And my mother's the only one who believed I was really going to become a pastor. And so that was cute. But in eighth grade, I was confirmed in Chicago, Dr. Martin Luther Church in Chicago. And it was the whole formal confirmation where you wore a white gown and I had a corsage on. And, and there was confirmation parties and all that. We went to the altar and had a special blessing that was given to us. And when Pastor Figuli came to me, he put his hand on me and gave me a blessing for the ministry. He says, may God work his miracles in you or something so that your calling is indeed complete. Now, this is going to seem weird, right? You're going to go, okay, Pastor John, I've got to talk to you. Let's not go too heavy on Carl's stuff, right? But what happened was I got up from that blessing, persuaded, convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I was going to become a pastor. I can't tell you the certainty and the confidence that overwhelmed me. It was already done. Now, it didn't keep me from having didn't keep me from having to go to seminary, and I didn't keep me from having to have good grades, didn't keep me from doing the work of it's just already done. Why? Because God has said in his word when he calls me, it's it's complete. It's done. See how critical that is for fearlessness? When you know the end, when you are caught up in the pluperfect tense, when God speaks to you in pluperfect ways, you can have the confidence as you stand and rise and go about your work and life that it is already done. Yeah, stuff you got to go through is just the details. Just the details. And an opportunity glorify God in your confidence and in mine. Fearlessness begins and ends focused on God. Don't look inside yourself. 
The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now we're ready to start getting into Psalm 27. It starts with a focus on the Lord is my light of my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Not let's be not afraid, but let's take a look at the Lord as your light. It also ends in the same confident way. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The beginning and the ending of Psalm 27 form a bookend of our confidence and calling to focus and wait on God in order to address our own fears. Fearlessness is God's gift. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall, though an army encamp against me. My heart shall not fear, though war rise up against me. Yet I will be confident. Go back to the silly of back to the future. And Biff or Buff or whomever, or you or I in the head of the almanac, wouldn't have to be afraid that the Gators were down by four touchdowns before the fourth quarter came about. Because you and I would know they would, have, they would outscore the opponent, which would likely be Florida State. <laughs> the following commentary shall be brought down. Yet I will be confident. Despite what I see, I know the ending. Fearlessness is absorbed in God's presence. Watch how this unfolds. One thing I have asked of the Lord from Psalm 27, verses 4 and 5, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter and in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock. Ah. Fearlessness has to do with releasing and dwelling and gazing and absorbing what God has to offer. It's called the gospel. It's called confidence. And it's not found in you or me. It's external to us. It is God's gift to pour out and receive. Fearlessness produces the gift of, the gift of trust. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Huh. When my father-in-law was uh, passing away, uh, he had uh, lymphoma. He was a young man in his 50s, and uh, um, we were at that time attending University of Florida, and uh, Mary Louise and I and were living in Gainesville and ministering to her mom and dad as her dad went through cancer treatments, and the rest of that stuff. And at that time, Ma Hill was reading a book called I Will Praise the Lord Anyway. And I thought, that's odd. <laughs> Your husband is dying of lymphoma, and you're reading a book on praising the Lord anyway. It didn't make sense to my strategic mind. But I watched the witness it created, and the love she had, and how it guided her through difficult times. Despite every reason to be afraid, she would praise and sing because her confidence and her trust and her focus and her gaze were upon the gift of God 
and his love. The thing I like about this psalm, which we're going to unfold completely in just a little bit, it gives bold voice to reluctance and skepticism. This isn't fairy tale where all of our fears melt away. We're still left with our unbelief. I'm still left with my unbelief. I'm still left with my struggles, my doubts, my tensions, my anxieties, my fears, because I'm human. I'll take one more poll. How many in here are human? Okay, good. Yeah. There's some I've seen you. Well, never mind. Point of that is to be human is to be torn, to struggle. No matter how much you and I know this, the end of the game, there's still a part of us that has to be encouraged and recognized and speak it. God says, speak to me with your doubts. Come to me with your fears. Let me know what they are. And the psalmist unfolds that too. You have said, seek my face, my heart. Your face do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Don't hide from me, God. Turn not your servant away in anger. Don't walk away from me. Please don't walk away from me. You have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. The psalmist is dealing with his doubts. Don't go away. Oh, God, please don't go away. Oh, God of my salvation, for, the, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. The middle part of Psalm 27 helps us understand, yeah, you and I are going to wrestle with this. That's not abnormal. We're going to, God is going to do all these amazing things. He's shown us the end of the story. We're going to have bread and wine, body and blood. We're going to be able to be strengthened in body, mind, and spirit as we leave this place. Once more refreshed and reminded of the ending of things. Once more knowing that he's leading us wherever we want to go. Knowing that we can see far more than what's going on from the naked eye because we trust that God's armies are around us. But in the middle of all that, I have fear. And the psalmist says, yeah, Carl, you will. It's called sin. It's called being human. It's called being fallen. And that's why I want you to stay close to me. And I will not turn away. So our confession of faith is really what I think Psalm 27 is. Here it is. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For he will not hide, he will hide me in the shelter of the day in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O oh, God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me. 
but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Would you do me a favor? Join me in this abbreviated confession of faith, beginning with the words, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. Would you speak these words with me as though they were your own? I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Again, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. 